Well, good morning, you guys. I'm Brian Agavino. I'm the lead pastor at the Summit here. It's great to have you here on this beautiful morning as we continue in our series on the book of Mark. Uh, Just as a quick note, you may have noticed we have a baptismal in here at the end of the service today. We're going to be celebrating a baptism. I'll tell you more when that's to come. Uh, Usually what we do is every week, for most every week, we uh, celebrate communion. And uh, The purpose of communion is really to, there are two things that Jesus taught us to practice. One is communion and then the other is baptism. And so because we're celebrating baptism today, we just wanted that to be the picture at the end that we look to to remind us of who we are in Christ. And so that's why we're not doing communion today. For those of you who are like, what's going on? Where are the communion cups? Uh, It's okay. It's okay. It's all planned. It's all planned. Uh, So we're going to be doing that this morning. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today. Let me read our passage for us. It's Mark 1, 1 through 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down And untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever overslept for something important? I will confess something to you guys that I have this recurring dream on Saturday nights. It's always on Saturday nights that I forget to wake up and show up at church, and so I come running into church, and like right in the moment when it's time to preach, and then when I come up here, I don't have my notes, and so I just like riff the whole thing, and it's incredibly bad, and it goes horribly wrong. Do you guys have that dream? Oh, the preaching dream too. You guys have that preaching dream too? Yeah, it's good. So, One thing, you know, maybe you do this too, like if I'm going on a really important trip, I like to set a couple of alarms just to make sure I don't miss it. I don't want to be late to the airport. There's just something about missing that thing that's important. Well, we mentioned last week as we did our first series, as we start now in the Gospel of Mark about how Mark dumps right into the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he wastes no time in telling us what's about to happen here. And 
in the beginning of this story, he wants to disrupt all of our lives when it comes to Jesus Christ. And he starts this story with an alarm clock. He starts this story by making sure we're not going to miss what's about to happen. He starts this story by bringing a person running into the room who's shouting, wake up, wake up, wake up. Because what's about to happen could be the most significant thing in history. So what is it that John's preparing the way for? What is the alarm clock that he's crying out? Well, to simply say it, it's the salvation of the world. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, is bursting on the scene. You know, that word salvation can be such a churchy word, but it is connected to the word Messiah. I mean, what does the Messiah do? A Messiah saves. A Messiah redeems. They make things right. And John the Baptist is preparing the way. He is the alarm clock. He's the opening set so that we don't miss it for such a Savior, for such a Messiah, and for such a salvation. But let's remember that Mark does this in a way that he wants to disrupt our lives. He wants to, to, to really make us think differently about what's happening. And so the salvation that he is about to reveal, the salvation that John the Baptist is the alarm clock to, is a salvation that he wants us to think beyond our imaginations. He, he wants us to think about what this could possibly be. And so I'd ask you this morning, when you think about this, that we, it's not a strange phrase to ask that Jesus saves. When you hear that, what do you think that means? What has Jesus saved you from or saved you to? I wonder this morning if we need our understanding of that to be disrupted. That our understanding of salvation is too small. When we dive into our passage this morning, we're just going to pretty much go straight through it. We'll see that salvation is planned, that salvation is holistic, and that salvation is actually very active. So let's... let's think about this as we go into here. So let's start with this first part of our passage in John chapters 1 through 8 where we see, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 where John the Baptist comes on the scene. And, and there's this tradition actually in today in Jewish culture where they leave one seat empty at the Seder meal because it's this anticipation that someone is going to come who's going to announce the coming Messiah. And we have this quote in verses 2 and 3 as it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And this verse is talking about John the Baptist. And it actually comes from two different passages. It comes from a verse in Malachi and from a verse in Isaiah. And Mark's combining them together here to help us see that the Old Testament and all of its stories were telling us that one day the Messiah would come and there would be this preparation, there would be an alarm clock to it, there would be something that would help us not miss what was about to happen. A herald who would say, prepare the way. And this is John. It's interesting, I was reading that some people actually argue that for the Israelites back then, some people would have been more excited about John showing up than Jesus. That is like, oh, Oh, yeah, this is what we've been waiting for. John, John the Baptist, this is what it's talked about. And so that's why it says that so many people were going out 
to see him. And now that he's on the scene, something exciting is about to happen. It's interesting. We often, we read about John the Baptist and we kind of think of John like an opening act at a concert almost. Like, I, so, you know, concert goers here, I, I'm actually super excited. I'm going to a concert of one of my favorite bands tonight. And the opening act starts at 7.30, who I don't even know who they are. And so I'm kind of like, well, if the real act starts at 8.45, then maybe I'll just get there at 8.30, because the opening act doesn't really matter. What's happening here is not that. So what's happening here is we have to see that what John the Baptist is, is like he is in some ways, he is the opener, but he's bringing into play here something so grandiose that people didn't want to miss it. So they were going out in droves to see him. They were, they were running out to be baptized and to experience him. And so, so we have to ask ourselves, as we encounter this passage, does it feel like an alarm clock to us? I mean, let's, we kind of don't get it. Why is it so significant that John had to come first. I mean, here we've got this guy who would be a, an amazing contestant on Fear Factor. He, he ate locusts, and he wore weird clothes, and he ate honey, and it's like, yeah, he's weird, and he's strange, and all of these things, and so why is it so important that he had to come on the scene first? In some ways, I think what this does for us is it is evidence to the fact that for some of us, our understanding of salvation is too small. I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of like I am with the concert. It's like, okay, I'm glad the opening act is here, but let's just get on to the forgiveness of sins. Let's just get on to the guy who's going to rise from the dead. And those are all very important and significant aspects of salvation. But what John actually is doing here, what John the Baptist is, he comes on the scene, what he's trying to do is he's trying to connect us to a much bigger story, a much bigger purpose, a much greater and more significant salvation than just the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, you can kind of see that he even is talking about this in his language that after he preaches, he's saying, one who is coming who is mightier than I, who I can't even, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, is about to be here. And I'm baptizing with you with water and a, and a confession of repentance, but there's one who's going to come, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And John is connecting what God is doing in all of eternity to this one moment in time. And so it warrants asking some questions of our own hearts. Do you struggle with life being boring at times? Do you wonder if your job even matters? Do you struggle to get out of bed in the morning? I would argue in some way for those of us who are followers of Jesus, if we struggle with those things, it's partly because we think that salvation is just this thing. We, we get baptized, we get raised up out of the water, we're safe, we're in, now what's the point? And John, what he's doing is he's trying to point us to something bigger and greater and more important. His preparation is critical to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. So, as John's on the scene here, Mark starts with John, he sets the alarm clock, and then we have the first scene of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to read it for us just one more time. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, the first question we should all be asking in this moment is why was Jesus baptized? Why do we get baptized? Why today are we going to celebrate baptism? Well, a lot of us would say the answer to that question is somebody, his name is Tim actually, Tim has put his faith in Jesus and what's happened then is he needs to to declare to everybody that Jesus saved him. And so I'm going to be, he's going to be baptized in these waters and declare to us as a church that the Messiah, that he's put his faith and trust in Jesus. And so baptism, in its rudimentary sense, is this picture of us having been saved by the Messiah and the declarative display to all who see that that's happened in our lives. So let's come back to the question. Then why would Jesus get baptized? I mean, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. We, we know that he had no sin, so there was nothing that he needed to be saved from. And, and in some sense, then we might say some things like, well, at some point this represents the beginning of his ministry, and so he was being baptized so people would know, oh, Jesus is here, let's get excited about that. Or there's another aspect, which, which is true, and there's another aspect that we might argue, well, the reason why he was being baptized was because he wanted to justify or clarify or point to what John the Baptist was doing in his ministry and saying what John was doing was preparing the way for me, and so I'm saying that John is right and it's a God-ordained thing. But still, I would come back to why is this the first thing that Mark shows us about Jesus? Now, there's a really important piece of theology that we need to understand that's going to help us reflect on why this is so significant. So now, throughout the story of the Old Testament, we have these stalwart or really significant characters that probably most of us have heard of before. So we talk about Abraham, and we talk about Moses, and we talk about David. And sometimes when we engage with Scripture, we have this thing where we'll, we'll say things like, we'll talk about the life of David, and, and we'll say, oh, yeah, you know, David, he had this battle with Goliath. And, and so we'll talk about, oh, what are the Goliaths in your life? And how can you be more like David in your life? And how are you going to do what David did? And what's interesting about the Old Testament specifically is that really people never read it that way. That the Israelites never considered and asked themselves, well, how can we in our lives be more like David? They saw David, and there's some important language here I want to teach you guys, as a representative. So let's go back. So Abraham, what his role was, is he was a representative of God's people. Moses, he was a representative of God's people. And then when we get to David, he was a king who was a representative of God's people. And each one of these significant people through the story of God, they were representatives of all of God's people before God. And people understood that that way. And then this is significant. Why? Well, because what happens then is people weren't necessarily thinking, well, how can I be like Abraham or Moses or David? They were looking to those people to do something before God for them. So now Jesus comes on the scene, and he gets baptized. And this picture of baptism 
is doing what? He's basically saying to all of humankind, I now am the final representative. I am the one who's coming on the scene who will not lie like Abraham did, who will not kill like Moses did, who will not commit adultery like David did. I'll come on the scene to be your perfect and final representative. And so there's this picture here of what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm not just coming to save your soul, to bring you forgiveness of sins, which is huge and significant in and of itself if that was all that he did. But he actually comes to be our king. He actually wants you to know and follow him. He wants salvation to be an all-encompassing, all-purposeful, all-intentional thing that happens in our lives and throughout our lives. And so what this picture is, what Jesus is doing, the reason why he's baptized is he gets into the water to say, I'm associating with you, and I want you to be associated with me. So two aspects of this, this kingship that I want us to flesh out here just for a few minutes. The first is this. Usually when you think about a king, when you engage someone who is a king or someone who is prominent, there would be this understanding of they are great and I am a peon. So, I mean, think about what's happening right now in England and these people are waiting 24 hours to go have their 10 seconds in front of the casket of the queen. But still, that, that that's, there's this perspective for them that, okay, she was amazing, she is above me, and I am nothing. I just want my one or two seconds to be in her presence because that feels good to me. What Jesus is doing is he's saying exactly the opposite of that in his baptism. He's saying, look, I am the king, but I'm choosing to associate with you, to be amongst you, to be with you, to be known by you, to be like you, to be a friend to you, to be doing life with you. It really is kind of bringing this representative concept and idea. Basically, what he's doing is he's associating himself with us. And so if we go back just quickly here to our, to our understanding of our small salvation, when we think about salvation being something that shows we are saved, we are safe, we are in, Mark is trying to disrupt our understanding of salvation to show us that really what's happening is so much more, that we now have a king who actually wants to identify with us. He wants to connect with us. So that's the first aspect of what we understand about it, that Jesus wants to identify with us. But the second aspect of this, and this is where it gets actually quite exciting, is that Jesus doesn't want to just identify with us, but he wants to actually give us, therefore, then, a whole new identity. So he's identifying with us, but he's giving us actually a whole new identity, identity that actually says what God says about Jesus. See, this is what's important about representation. So to come back to this idea, to be a representative, it means that everything that is true about the representative becomes true about the people who are in that person. So what Jesus is saying is, because I'm going to be your now true and final representative, when God declares, in you I am well pleased, that now becomes your new identity. 
To, to be baptized into Jesus, to have this picture where we're joining him in our baptism, when we're doing that, basically what's happening is we're getting and receiving all that is true of Jesus and what he has and what he's done has now become true of us. Okay, I know that that's a lot of theological teaching and understanding. So, let me illustrate it. Some of you may know Albert Pujols is trying to hit some home runs right now. Does everyone know this story about what's going on with Albert Pujols? Okay. So, Albert, you know, he's trying to hit 700. A few days ago, he crossed over and beat the fourth place person, or the fifth place person to become the fourth place person. He hit home run 697, and this weekend, he hit home run 698. And it was this what happens in these games is unbelievable. Now when Albert comes up to bat, what does everybody do? They stand up. They get all their phones out. They're like, man, Albert, we got it. this is going to be amazing. Can't wait to see what's going to happen. So everyone's watching. Jonathan and I, the worship, our worship minister here, we were talking yesterday about how much pressure there has to be on Albert in these moments to just hit two more home runs. And so everybody's watching him. Everybody's filming him. All of these things are happening. So go back with me to Friday night. The cards are losing. It's two to four. And there's a man on base. And Albert's up, he's got 697, everyone in the ballpark is standing up, everyone who has a phone is filming him, and then all of a sudden, Albert crushes this home run to left field. And everyone goes bonkers. He's, he's super slow, he's almost as slow as Yachty, and he tracks around the bases, right? And he's going around the bases, and he comes all the way home. Okay, you hung with me here, here's where I'm going. What happens in Cardinal baseball after someone hits a home run? Okay, you're almost there, sorry. I set that up and then you didn't really know the answer, so that's not a good pastoral thing. <laughs> There's always a curtain call. There's always a curtain call. Now, for those of you who don't know what a curtain call is, what that means is the stadium goes crazy, everyone's super excited, and the fans want to praise what has been accomplished. So what they do is they make Albert come out of the dugout, he pops out of the dugout, and he gives a curtain call, and he waves, and everyone cheers, and he does all those things, right? Okay. This is what it means to have Jesus as your representative. After Jesus has gone through literal hell and suffering, and pain and accomplish the greatest feat that anyone can ever imagine or experience by dying for sin and raising from the dead. What he then says to you in that moment is the crowd is ready to erupt and celebrate what has happened as he says, you take the curtain call. You go out. You be the one who's celebrated and who God says over, in you I am well pleased. See, what I think so many of us struggle with is we have this idea of salvation where we're like, whew, I made it in. You know, we joke about being in the baptismal, like we'll get baptized and we come up and we're like, whew, that water's dirty now. You know, it's like we have this thing in our minds where we're like, God is just kind of okay that we're in. Yes, he loves us and he cares about us, but he's just okay. But I would argue to you that the most significant, powerful, and beautiful theology that any of us could ever begin to and start to grasp is this idea 
that what Jesus has earned, because we are now in him, all of that is now ours. That as he's seen as holy, loved, and pleasing to God, we now have that. We are now God's child. We are now his beloved. We are now his cared ones. Think about it this way. If you had to say who you are before God, what would be your first answer? Now, I would argue, probably most of us would say, I'm a sinner. Which, in effect, is true. It is sin that caused Jesus to break into this world. But if we are in Christ, if we've been baptized in Christ, then the real answer to that question is, I'm God's beloved. I've been been given the name that he, everything that he named in Christ has now been given to me. Okay, think about it this way. There, uh, I'm reading this book on habits right now. It's actually really good. And it's talking about, like, how do you change your habits and how do you do all these different things. And the way that this sets up how we understand our habits is usually what we say is, okay, I'm going to set the goal of running a marathon. And what this book is arguing for is basically it's saying you have to think about it differently. You have to think about your identity before you think about your goals. And so if you want to change how you're going to be, you have to change the identity piece. So the goal is not to read a book. The goal is to become a reader. The goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to be a runner. Now, it's great. It's great practical things for how we do this. Here's what's awesome about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why it's great news. This is why it needs someone to prepare the way. This is why John the Baptist has to come on the scene and go, wake up, wake up, wake up. Your new representative is here. He's saying, who are you? You're a mess. You're broken. You're sinful. You have nothing worthy in you. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to baptize you. And you get everything I get. You go take the curtain call. All of that moment. No, not because I feel sad for you. Because everything that I've earned, you now have. So you run out of that stadium. And is the crowd going to go, oh. (laughs) They won't. They won't because we are in Christ. That's what it means. That's what the baptism of Jesus means. That he now is our representative. That we are now in him. You know, people ask me to preach about all different kinds of things. You know why I preach about this all the time? Because we don't get it, and this is what we need to get. I mean, you guys, this is the most significant truth that can radically change our lives. If you want to be a runner, you got to work at it. If you want to be a reader, you got to work at it. If you want to be beloved and seen as a child of God, guess what? You got to do nothing. Uh, But think about that. I mean, seriously, think about this. Wait, Brian, wait, 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 wait. You're saying that I just, when I put my faith in Jesus, I'm given that statement over me. You are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased.
I've been pastoring long enough to know that probably every single one of us in this room have had people and parents and friends define our journeys by declaring, in you I am not pleased. That every one of us has been scarred and marked and burdened and hurt by people in our lives who have looked at us and said, earn it. And Jesus breaks into the world and he needs John the Baptist to prepare the way because the hope of what could be ours needs heralding. It needs a wake-up alarm. It needs crying out. And Jesus now breaks into the scene and he identifies with us, but he doesn't just identify with us in baptism. He says, now I offer to you a whole new identity. You're my kid. And he wants you to live in the reality of the truth that says, in you, I am well pleased. To be baptized into the name of someone is to belong to that person and have all that that person has. That's what baptism means. Yes, forgiveness of sins. Yes, resurrection from the dead. But my friends, so much more than that. Is it for you? Is knowing Jesus and being loved beyond compare, being given the hope that you are God's child to be seen as righteous and holy and blameless? Do those things, are those things a reality for you in life? Or are you still just glad you snuck in? Because I would argue to us all that Jesus is sad if that's what the truth of our reality is. Because he's given us so much more. That's why we come to this thought now, too, that salvation is active. It's holistic and it's active. So if God's been planning this since the beginning of time to break into the world and give you a new identity that offers a holistic salvation, shouldn't that then change our purpose? Shouldn't it then change how we live? John Stott, uh, a guy, pastor, writer who died many years ago, he wrote this in a great book called Basic Christianity. just lays out the simple truths and what it means to follow Jesus and know him. He wrote this. If you actually heard the real Jesus, if you ever actually met the real Jesus, if you really saw what he was saying, you either hated him and tried to wipe him out, or secondly, were scared to death of him and tried to get as far away from him as possible, or thirdly, you knelt at his feet, and as it were, you laid the sword of your life at his feet and said, command me. You gave your life to him utterly in adoration. It's, it's interesting that there's this call to salvation that when we've been given so much 
that there should be this response driven by adoration for what we've been given. I mean, who, who can give us an identity like that? You know, if our understanding of salvation is too small, we'll just be like, well, that's cool. <laughs> I'm in. But if we see it as something that was planned, that was so significant, it warranted a herald coming on the scene, and it's so holistic that it's not something that I have to work towards. It's something that is an, an identity that has been given to me that can radically change my story and how I see myself and how I understand life to be then what happens then is that there should then be this active response of saying, I now get to join Jesus in this story of bringing restoration into the world. That Jesus basically, the reason why he invites us to take that altar call, if you will, is he's inviting us to be a part of this grand story of inviting others into a new identity. There is a battle that demands our whole life. In fact, next week we're going to talk about what that battle is. And if we have a greater view of salvation, we'll embrace the responsibility to join Jesus in his mission. And, and, and this is where I would, I would challenge us a little bit that in salvation, what's been given to us, oftentimes we talk about how grand and beautiful and wonderful it is, and that's what I'm trying to help us embrace and get this morning. And one piece of evidence that will show us we have embraced it is it will then lend itself to us feeling a responsibility to join Jesus in it. And one of the greatest struggles we have in our journeys as Christians is we divorce our identity from our responsibility. Harvey Kahn, a writer and a great thinker about the kingdom of God, he wrote this, we are apprentice sons and daughters who are to take up the family business of the kingdom of God. I love that. I mean, think about that. When we, we, we have now the most great and perfect representative, and we're a part of a new family business. And you know what that family business is about? It's about inviting other people into this great identity that they can experience and have too. So he says, we are to take up the family business of the kingdom of God, seeking to be both agents and models of the renewal and restoration of the kingdom of God. We must not communicate an Americanized half gospel which divorces the status of those in Christ from the responsibility of those who are in Christ. And, and sometimes I think we flip it. We talk more about the responsibility and we think that will earn us our identity but this is where it's the opposite. Jesus gives us that identity and then invites us out of that identity to live and follow him. And that for myself and for all of us this morning is the question I would like you to ponder here at the end is, are you living in light of your identity in Christ which is leading you to live in this responsibility of the family business? I'm not a big robe guy. I don't really wear robes. <laughs> but I want to end with a powerful picture that comes from the book of Isaiah this morning. 
to maybe help us think about what it looks like to live in our identity and our responsibility. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, it says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This is the picture I hope that you'll join me in thinking about this week. When we're in Christ, what he does is he comes to us and because of what he has gained, he takes this most beautiful robe, the robe of righteousness, the robe that says you are right, you are well pleased, and he drapes it over our shoulders. And he says, I want you to walk around in that robe. I wonder what kind of robe it is that you are walking around in. Is it the, you know, you got the last robe that was, you know, the bottom of the bin, the bottom of the Amazon box robe that was kind of cut and shredded a little bit? Or, or do you really think about how, what it means that Jesus broke into this world and identified with us in baptism, and then in that baptism, he says, I'm going to be your representative. I'm going to give you everything I have. He's saying, I now am going to clothe you with the robe of righteousness. And he says, now... Walk around in the robe of righteousness. You know, if, if we were to take that curtain call, how do you think we would walk around after that? I mean, how, how do you think, what would we do when people came up to us and said, hey, that's amazing? Would we be like, yeah, I'm not worthy? Or would we say, let me tell you about the one who suffered and gave to me this amazing identity that I now have. I mean, there's something so beautiful about thinking about this. And, and I would just ask you this week to really ponder that, that as you walk around, that you would ask Jesus to help you start to see that not only did he identify with you, but that he has given you a new identity. And in that new identity, he has clothed you now with righteousness. And he's saying, join me in the mission to tell others about how beautiful this identity can be. And there's nothing they need to bring to the table. There's nothing that makes them too unworthy to be made worthy. They just need to say, I follow you. And then God, because he said it to Jesus, would say it over us. You now are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for this truth this morning that you have given us a new identity. And we pray that you would explode our hearts and minds with what that means. Would you disrupt our lives? Would you show us this week how much we live without the dignity that you want us to live in? Would you show us this week how much we beat ourselves up? Would you show us this week how much we strive for what's already been given us? And, and might we just, as we see even this morning this picture of baptism and how simple it is to just be 
buried with Christ and then raised to walk in the newness of life, might we all experience what it means to be raised and that we've been clothed in righteousness and clothed in beauty and given all that we could possibly ask for and want in Christ. So, Father, awaken our souls to the beauty of the salvation that we have in Christ. Might we, too, submit to and follow the true Messiah, the Son of God. It's in his name that we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.